0: What's the worst thing that could happen? And know. now, coming to you live from the question Room, high above the Gooch Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on, undoubtedly a long ramble through, the Gooch
1: Podcast! And we're, we're, we're back. It's just us. It's, it's late summer. Uh, the uh, lockdowns are starting again in the United States. You're trapped in Australia until... You're, you're living on the beach right now. You're living the old Neville Shute novel, which became a Stanley Kramer movie. And in one of these days, before you die, there will be an American submarine showing up off the coast of Perth <laughs> with the last survivors of San Francisco's COVID <laughs> wanting refuge.
0: Now, now, look, look, that that's only true over on the East Coast. I mean, here where I am, we are… Inside a locked border, but that's all at the moment. You know, there's there's very little or no COVID inside West Australia, but over East they are. I mean, they've been locked down for a chunk of time and mm-hmm. maybe locked down till next year. The way things are going, it's terrible. Did I ever tell you the thing about uh, the link between On the Beach and Howard Waldrop and Swancon? No, and I probably wouldn't have any way of knowing that if you hadn't told me. It, it, it's it's not that interesting, but well, I'll, I'll go with it. On the Beach was a, a, a seminal favorite book, and I think even film. Mm -hmm. of howard and he carried around the lyrics to i think it was Walsing matilda in his wallet for years and years and years years, because that's referenced in on the beach yeah Mm -hmm. and so they bring him out to to Swancon as a guest of honor in 1997 fly him out and i mean i remember going to the airport and howard arrives and i don't know if you've ever you've met howard uh Mm -hmm. who's this year's grandmaster lovely guy very unassuming and he comes off he's got one of those little tiny pan am trap you know Carry-on bags, right? Yeah, and this is all he's brought with him, right? I'm kind of because because he comes off the plane with a little pan and bag from 1952, and you're kind of going, "Cool, we'll go and get your bags." He goes, "No, this is it." And you get there and you realize that not only is this the only thing he's brought, but he's got a fishing rod in it, right? So he's got a fishing rod <laughs> in his carry-on luggage, and I think one spare pair of pair of spare underwear for three weeks in Perth or something. And he goes to stay at the thing, but anyway, we get to the convention, and it's Australia Day, and he's doing his guest of honor speech. And everybody's heard that he's carrying around the lyrics to, to, to uh, Walsing Matilda because he loves On the Beach. And, like, they open up the doors when he's in the speech, speech a 100 people come in and start mm-hmm. singing. And there's Howard. It's great. Oh. Fantastic. We, 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 that was when we published his collection, Going Home Again, uh, and actually gave him the copies the night before the convention started and just happened to come out. It was great. I'm delighted that he's the, the the uh well the life one of the life achievement recipients recipients this year. I wish I, sure I could be it, in Montreal to applaud him.
1: And and you've been you you've been lobbying for him for years, and he is um, as notoriously it's it's it, it's it's great partly because of uh, long overdue recognition, but also because he is I think to many readers now an obscure figure. He 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 showed up at conventions. I think I saw him. In San Antonio, probably, at World Fantasy there, maybe where I met him, maybe once or twice before that. He's not reclusive, but he certainly is isolated. Isn't that a fair way to describe it? Well,
0: I don't think he's really reclusive at all. I do think he's had suffered from a long, long period of ill health. Yes. And that ill health has kept him away from conventions. There was a long period of time where... Yeah, you know, Howard would get invited to conventions, and that was how you got him to finish stories, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you'd get him to be a guest of honor at a convention. He promised he'd promise to do a reading, then he'd have to write an original story to finish it, and he'd end up writing it on napkins at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> the night before. Stagger in, read it. It would be brilliant, and then he'd sell it to Omni for a pile of money the next day. That's the that's the kind the of way it used to go back in the day. But I think what happened with his in terms of his career, looking back at it, I mean, to me. The golden period for Waldrop is from the 80s through into the 90s. And then somewhere around the mid-90s, the work gets more self-referential and closed off, more complex and uh, not necessarily readily accessible. And then as I mean, he had a lot of eye problems for a chunk of time. Yeah. Uh, and as, as, as his problems with his sight in, you know, became worse and as his health deteriorated, he became less productive. And so like in the last 10 years or so, he's really written very little or published very little. You know, I think there's been maybe, yes, yeah, three stories in the last decade.
1: He's also and, someone who's, who's mostly known for short fiction. So uh, I don't know a lot of people who've read A, a Dozen Tough Jobs, for example. Dozen Tough Jobs is brilliant. It's Stunningly good. How brilliant. widely read is it? I think it was fairly widely read
0: for a while. Mm. You know, um, I think the stories in Omni were very widely read. Mm, that's true. You know, and I think he ha- when... As I mean, Ellen Dowell was a great, ed- was genuinely a great editor for him and shepherded his work so that when she moved on to sci fiction and event horizon and those kind of places, she kept him writing for her in those kind of places. That mm-hmm. really helped. Um, but as his productivity dropped off and as the work became, like I say, more self referential or more closed off, I think people found it harder to follow. And some stuff, it's like I always think about there's a novella that he wrote for Cheap Street Press. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you remember Cheap Street. They were a high-end letterpress out of Roanoke, Virginia. Oh, I've seen those, yes. Yeah. Uh, And you wrote this novella, You Could Go Home Again. Now, You Could Go Home Again was the story of Jerry Salinger working as a Cruise ship director, basically, (laughs) on a zeppelin flying back from the 1941 Tokyo Olympics, with Fats Waller playing piano in the bar. You'd have to know that, that, of course, that Jerry Salinger did work as a cruise ship director, Mm -hmm. a cruise ship entertainment guy, because he really did. You had to know that 1941 Olympics never happened in Tokyo because they were cancelled. And the first reading through, it's kind of a bit closed And I, 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 because we, I published this collection that had it in it, Going Home Again. Uh I, I must have, we had to proof it. I must have read it a dozen times. And you work, realize it's absolutely work of genius you read it four times. If you read it four times. You have to, but you have to read it four times. Well, that's
1: and that kind of, of gets the barrier to the genius thing. Well, I mean, this this raises an issue that uh, that, that comes up. It, it came up recently with the uh, uh, Best of Ari Lafferty, that there are, uh, uh, there's a tradition, and all these writers are fitting into the same kind of american folk tradition where there's a lot of kind of crypto historical stuff in their work i mean uh in in lafferty's case he had a ridiculous amount of knowledge about medieval christian theology and this sort of thing and 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 catholic doctrine but also a lot of historical stuff what you're talking about with waldrop is you're right there's the story becomes richer the more you know how much he's embedding into it and the I don't know if there's such a term as crypto-historical fiction. If not, there is now. But there are writers like Andy Duncan now who are writing the same kind of thing. There's a kind of science fiction fantasy Americana that I think Waldrop, in, in his most famous short fiction, even in the Flying Saucer, Rock and Roll, and Ugly Chickens, and that sort of thing, um, was 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 tapping into a kind of voice that nobody else in science fiction was tapping into at that time. But now I think you have a lot of people looking at it. I think uh, Maybe Christopher Roberts so. I mean, kind of is, is kind of working in that tradition. There's some of that yeah. in some of Jeff Ford's
0: fiction. I think there is. I mean, there's a difference. I mean, the, the first thing to remember about Waldrop's fiction, it's not apparent at first, is he's utterly enthralled to the 1950s. Yeah, that's true. Usher, utterly enthralled. Everything circles around there, comes from there. The popular culture references are for that period. Everything. Whether he's fighting against whatever else. Um I don't know what the equivalent is. I think Andy's different. Andy's more, uh, Andy Duncan's more, is more kind of on the manly wade Wellman end of the spectrum to my way of thinking Mm -hmm. in that space. Um, Whereas, you know, Jeff Ford, I mean, I I know what you mean. The the Ford's different again because arguably he's more intellectual than either of the other two, I think. I mean, his stories are visceral, but the structuring and the concept, right, that's he, true. he's much more of an intellectual. Um, they're, they're, I mean, it is interesting to see them to put together and then to try and work out because I mean, if you think about it, we're talking about three white male voices in Waldrop, in Duncan and in, mm-hmm. um, and even in Lafferty as well. And they are, a con- I mean, I don't know that I see, I see a connection between Lafferty and Waldrop and Duncan. I see less on that spectrum t- to Ford, like Ford strays further outside of that.
1: Well, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Although there are stories and, that I think could be put into that general tradition of what I, I, I don't know uh, something to do with Americana. And, and, and who and
0: are there? Is this a, a an odd male kind of obsession, or are there female writers that we're not thinking about, like Shirley Jackson or somebody, and even Kelly
1: Link, who begin to skew into this space as well? Somehow, I'm not sure that Shirley Jackson skews into the space. I think some of the I think one of the one of the authors who I would Without any prior knowledge, and they can correct me on this, but I I would guess that one of the authors who probably influenced at some level Waldrop and probably Duncan and probably Chris Rowe was not a science fiction writer at all. I think Flannery O'Connor lies behind Mm -hmm. that. There's a sense of imminence. There's a sense of religiosity. And there's a sense of writing very strange stories about interesting and bizarre character that um, is is one of those... uh, secret writers who I think has influenced a lot of science fiction and fantasy writers, even though only by squinting at it very carefully could you see any fantasy at all in her own fiction. I mean, uh, there's, uh, mm-hmm. Andy Duncan actually wrote a story about Flannery O'Connor as a little girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, unique How much of this do you factor?
0: think this is a southern thing?
1: It could be. Uh, the, the The whole southern gothic thing uh, is, is something that used to be discussed a lot. There was a kind of supernatural undercurrent to some of Faulkner's uh, stuff. Certainly there was Flannery O'Connor. There were uh, bizarre kind of oddball writer novels like A Confederacy of Dunces by that guy whose name I'm blanking on right now who unfortunately committed suicide because he couldn't get it published. Um, And I think that that kind of voice uh, even mm-hmm. shows up, this is going to sound like I'm really going out of limb, but that kind of Southern Gothic voice even shows up in hard science fiction of people like Greg Benford. Oh, Benford, really? Huh.
0: Benford has,
1: Benford has written stories that are direct mm-hmm. echo uh, echoes of of, of of Faulkner novels and novellas. That's true.
0: It is It is interesting how different Benford's short fiction is from his novels. That's true. Oh. I mean, much like uh, Joe Haldeman. Mm-hmm short fiction quite different from, from the novel length. work,
1: um, And in some ways, much more interesting. Well, it's interesting in a different way, I'd say. Um, because there's there's a sense among writers who grew up... We're talking about two um, writers in, in, in their upper 70s, or I think maybe Benford is even 80 this year, or he's close to it. Um, but you're dealing with people mm-hmm. who grew up in the market where you had to write a bunch of stories, and then you had to sell novels, and you were trying to make a living, or you were trying to make your reputation because Benford never really had to make a living as a writer. You're trying to make your reputation on the basis of novels. So you have a generation of writers, a generation of people who considered themselves professional science fiction writers, and starting in the late 50s probably in, and through the next 50 years, who, who, for whom short stories were a side uh, a, a side issue. You, know, you were being asked by your publisher sure. to come up with a novel. You're supposed to come up with a novel every year, every two years. Short stories are what you did on your own time.
0: Pulling it back to to, to wall drop on that thing and tall tale telling and regional telling, Mm. do you think that it is a tall tale telling tradition a la Lafferty or do you think it's kind of regional telling and is that something that remains interesting do you think do you think we still see I mean like Christopher Rowe is a great example as as a Mm -hmm. writer from Kentucky Uh, I just have finished editing a new novella from him that's coming out next year called These Prisoning Hills and These Prisoning Hills is the final installment that stands alone completely is the final installment of his voluntary state cycle Mm -hmm. and it's very much set in the you know the blue hills of Kentucky and all that, the whole Appalachian regionalism, and it's great, I love it, but it's very much that sort of a thing. Uh, and I do wonder whether we, first of all, that's part of the key to it. I mean, Howard is a Texas, Howard was a Texas writer, a Texas yeah. tall tale teller from way back. Um, and and in this day and age, is, is that sort of thing, in fact, more enchanting, in, 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 in because we're looking to have a greater understanding of the world around us, that things are different. And so, I mean, like, I find myself responding to writers who are writing
1: set very locally? Well, I think you could make a you could make a case that uh, that, that Lafferty was very much an Oklahoma writer. You're right. Waldrop was very much a um, a Texas writer. Uh, Chris Rowe is Tennessee, I believe, is the vol- yeah. And for exactly. that matter, we could add Daryl Gregory to the list, who's who's yeah. more and more in recent fiction become an, uh, an East Tennessee. I just writer. started reading his new book right now, uh, The Revelator, which you've already read, yeah. The yeah, it is, and it's and it's it's the most of all of his books, probably it fits most clearly into this kind of local regionalism we're talking about. But you raise an issue which which is just really sort of haunting me now. We're all talking about white male writers. And it, when you think of regional writers, I suppose, if you look at literary histories, that's what comes up again and again. And when I, the reason I mentioned Flannery O'Connor is you have very clearly a Southern voice there. Carson McCullers, there was a kind of, in, in her short fiction, a kind of Eminence, a kind of sense of almost supernaturalism. And I'm just trying to think who currently uh, does that because Kelly Link doesn't strike me as being particularly a Massachusetts author. Maybe not. I, mean, I look back some, someone like say, Zora Neale Thurston, right? She, yeah, regional. Zora Neale Thurston certainly was a, a, a Florida writer and a, and a very, very influential fantasist for whole generations of people. Although she's uh, one yeah. of these writers whose influence probably has been greater uh, in the last 20 years than it was way back when she was alive. And not to sort of pick obvious names, but I mean, since we're trying to sort of link, there was a
0: strong regional element to some of the work that Le Guin did. It was strongly tied to the Oregon coast, mm-hmm. possibly not as strongly, say, Californian as Stan Robinson it is, because
1: a lot of the work varied more in some ways, but there was a strong link. Um, um, let's say, uh, one of uh one of the things that uh, I know Le Guin wanted to emphasize in the library of America volumes uh, was not just her Orsinian tales where she invented this middle European country, but her Oregon coast, there was a book called sea road, which is generations mm-hmm. of women in, in this one area uh, of, of Oregon, which is uh, incredibly detailed and, uh, and, and, and captures the sensitivity of the area. I mean, I've only been in Oregon a couple of times and that's some of Ma- Le Guin's most magical writing, and yet it's not really fantasy or science fiction either. It, yeah. it has that sense of something going on beyond the surface of the narrative. And maybe I, it's, because, saying, maybe it's yeah. because it's Le Guin. And one of the, when Le Guin writes mainstream stories, you're looking for fantasy and science fiction in them because you think it's going to be there. And if you look hard enough, maybe you can find it. But go ahead and finish your thought. I was going to say that, I mean, I have this feeling that there's,
0: you know, to the extent that anyone listens to this podcast, there's a bunch of people yelling names at us even as we speak. I hope so. And aren't occurring to us sort of in our either underslept or, or uh, getting later into the afternoon kind of uh, thing. But a lot of the, the female writers I think of tend to be less immediately regional in that way. I mean, there probably are. I mean, I guess when I think about it, Cherie Renee Thomas' co- re- collection that came out this year, yeah. not so much regional, but it's just it feels on like that whole Memphis kind of feel to it um and I can see it in some of the work from I mean, I guess yeah let me look at say Zen Cho's stuff when I, mean, I was just talking to Al Jazeera I was talking mm-hmm. to Al Jazeera about Zen Cho and her connecting her fiction into Malaysia is is an interesting thing and the way it, it does connect there I think has some of it. it's not so much in the like it is in the voice actually it's interesting uh, I found myself when, when you're when I was reading uh cho for to edit understanding the the rhythm of speech for the area that she that she was writing for mm-hmm. became very important because you realize that you're mis-editing um if, if you didn't get that kind of well this the the, the beat for this real may fall in your anglo reading of it like this but if you're
1: in Malaysia, the beat of it would fall here and she so did hear it like that. I, and that's I, kind know of exactly, I know exactly what you're saying because you, there were parts when, and we, I wish we had asked her about this when we were talking to her on the podcast. There's sometimes adding a syllable or a word at the end of a sentence that doesn't seem to make sense in colloquial American English anyway, but that finishes the rhythm of the sentence when you read it. And I finally realized this is an absolute recording of, of dialogue. It's one of the things that, um, I learned a long time ago from um, Elmore Leonard, of all people, mm-hmm. the dialogue that sometimes doesn't look right on the page doesn't look right because it's exactly right. If you read it aloud, especially if you read it aloud with the rhythms of of the of the, uh, of, of the mm. native speaker, what what Elmore Leonard did, for example, was supposedly I've heard this story many times. I asked him once. I met him once, and he said, "Yeah." Was he went down? He was trying to learn how to be a crime writer because the Western market had dried up for him. Uh, So he went down to the Detroit police station and just hung around writing down snatches of dialogue, dialogue he heard from, from cops and perpetrators and uh, accused perpetrators who were coming. And he he realized that people don't speak in the kinds of sentences they speak in, in Victorian novels. They probably Mm -hmm. didn't even speak that way in the Victorian era. So he transcribed this into, uh, into his fiction and, it takes a minute to get into that rhythm and say, wait a minute, That people actually speak in those sentence fragments. They actually add syllables that don't make any sense. They actually stutter. And when I was reading Zen Cho's stories, and especially in uh, Spirits Abroad, um, yeah. there was a lot of that. And I finally realized that's the rhythm of speech that she's capturing. And it's probably very accurate. And I probably learned something. I guess
0: the question, though, is, Does the way that, uh, say, Zencho writes about Malaysia, does the way that Aliette de Bodard writes about Vietnam, does the way that um, Kate Elliott writes about, uh, where she writes about? Oh, Sylvia Marina Garcia. Sylvia Marina Garcia is a fabulous example. Is that the same kind of regionalism we're talking about, or is that a different thing? It feels like it's a cousin. It's not that same tall, telling regional transition tradition that Waldrop and uh, Lafferty come out of, but it does have that same kind of reflecting of an area uh, or or reflecting a a different part of the world to to us. And what I think is the gift we're getting in the modern era with short fiction and fiction generally is that the more high quality fiction we see from around the world, the more we encounter different ways of reading and encountering stuff, and getting different kinds of voices, and th- this is the kind of thing—it's it's reading differently so that you pick it up what these rhythms are and where mm-hmm. emphasis are and how stories are told, and hence how the, You know, even when you—I find even when I'm picking up a casual book, I just picked up reading *The Library of the Dead* by T. L. Huchu, mm-hmm. right? Which is a new book that's made out recently. It's a, a supernatural crime book set in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and I find myself looking for, frankly, that kind of edinburgh dialect accent structure in the thing as as the flavor that i want i want the book to be seeped in it rather than you know bland Mm -hmm. and sort of generic otherwise it doesn't seem to work as well and then i wonder how much harder it is i mean uh i don't think you've read uh she who became the sun by Shelley parker chan which is a debut novel a month or two ago but there's this book set in in china back in the 11th century that the the challenge of Building character and communicating dialogue and feel for something where you really don't know in many ways exactly how it would have sound, sounded or been spoken at the time or how I mean there's a lot in that translation out mm-hmm. of you know in, into contemporary English basically to making it to making it work and I mean Tan does a g- good job we've talked about Guy K doing a similar good job and yeah. a great job on the same sort of stuff it's a very very tricky thing to do
1: well trying to create dialogue from an imaginary or, or even a historical society, well, you're right, we don't have any record of what the speech patterns were at all. I mean, they're, um, mm. and, and that's an issue. I was just reading um, the other night, uh, my partner Dale got a new translation of, of the Iliad. And it's mm-hmm. very short sentences. It's, it's very contemporary. It's very contemporary sounding. Um, and you get the sense that this is a kind of recreation of what the language might have felt like, but not an actual attempt to recreate... You know, added Greek. This is the same thing I keep hearing, and I've got to read it because I, I, I'm sure it's excellent about Maria Devana Headley's new version of Beowulf. Uh, yeah, clearly is is, is is uses a vernacular that it seems to me, from reading the reviews about it, uh, is is a very reasonable analog of what somebody, well, somebody who's basically a, um, I don't know, uh, a, a would a Beowulf would be talking like in in, in today's Lingo. It's it's uh in other words, it's not trying to create a fake, artificial, stately way of speaking, which is the way historical fiction used to be read. It's it's an attempt to to to, to get at that level. I'm talking about a novel about a translation I haven't read, so I should stop. Ahead.
0: Yeah, me too. I mean, I haven't read it either, so it's very difficult for me to say. Though I know people who adore it and think it's brilliant. Mm. It does sound kind of like what Levi Tidhar did with um, the Hood mm. in a way. Uh, in a way, and it does, in fact, sound quite a lot like what uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda did with Hamilton.
1: Um, to some extent, I mean, that's 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 a little bit of a stretch to turn to turn uh, you know the founding fathers into hip hop. I don't think they talked like that, and I don't think that they were received that way. But the emotional rhythm that he's trying to get across sounds and feels authentic, even though it probably isn't. Uh, I think that's a different kind of thing. I think that's recreating history in your own voice, which isn't the same thing as trying to create a historical voice.
0: Whereas do you think that there there, there is a sort of link between what Tidhar is doing in The Hood and what um, Maria Devna Headley is doing with Beowulf?
1: I think so, yeah. And it's interesting to look at – there was a, uh, a movie a few years ago called A Knight's Tale Not a bad movie, actually. Uh, I think one of the first medieval movies with a rock soundtrack, and it was um, the dialogue in it was completely forgettable. I think because it was an attempt to sort of modernize a story. It's not a bad story, but it's a modern version of a story. Most Hollywood versions are like that. There's a movie out now called The Green Knight, which doesn't do much of that at all. It's it's very the, the the language in it is almost drawn from this. Uh, 15th century poem, The Gawain and the Green Knight. And it feels more authentic uh, for that because it's not trying to translate anything. It's not trying to make sense to our modern sensibilities. There are giants that show up in it for reasons that are really never explained at all. But, you know, Mm -hmm. if, if you put yourself in that world, Sure, giants, why not? It's the same kind of thing Gene Wolfe did with his historical fiction, Uh, Soldier of Sidon and uh, Soldier of the Mist and that sort of thing. Uh, Same sort of thing that um, some of Cecilia Holland does. You put yourself in a world in which what the people believe influences what they perceive and what their language sounds like. And since they have a completely different set of beliefs from us, it's almost like translating what they mean into our own sensibility. Let me ask you this, completely tangentially, oh.
0: which is probably the most directly relevant thing we ever do. Um, You've been, we've both been reading genre fiction for. Um, what attracts you now to pick up a piece of short fiction? I mean, ignoring what you have sent in the mail, mm-hmm. what actually attracts you to pick up a piece of genre fiction to read it and gets you through to the end of it? Um, because surely that's changed across 40 years or more of reading 50 years of reading genre fiction. And it, it, it changes a lot. And
1: part of part of this has to do with being a reviewer and a critic. You want to get something that's not like what you've been getting in the mail. So, uh, I, I will, I will mention two books that, uh, are not science fiction books at all, but they they're practically the only two novels I've read, just plucking them out of thin air in the last couple of months. One of them is, uh, a, a novel by Carl Hyson, who's a comic, a, a comic crime writer in, in Florida. He's also extremely funny and extremely satirical and hilariously critical of Florida. He's, his latest novel is called Squeeze Me, and it's his first Trump era novel. Uh, okay, which uh, so so and it was a lot of fun. It was exactly what I expected. It was absurd. It was about a plague of pythons, to use a Frederick Pohl title, uh, sort of swallowing people all over Florida. <laughs> <laughs> um okay. and, and and he makes it credible. The other one which I just started and I I didn't start it because I thought I was gonna review it, it started because it looked really good, was the new Silver Sylvia Moreno Garcia novel, Velvet oh. was the night, which is I'm pretty sure not even remotely science fiction or fantasy. But it's a really good noir novel with a really good beginning and a really kind of uh tough voice, and it's it's pulling me through it. And I'm thinking, I'm going to enjoy reading this. Um uh, because I don't have to review it, partly, but mainly because it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so I've read those do you ever?
0: Go ahead. Do you, do you find yourself encountering things that used to attract you to read that now you bounce off? And I'll give you an example. Uh, this I've been bouncing off lots of things lately. I'm mm. currently reading about, I would conservatively say, five or six different books. mm now, that, that means that I'm not actually reading five or six different books, right? It means that I'm failing to read five or six different books. So I'm reading supernatural romance or supernatural crime novel in Library of the Dead. I'm mm. reading a gothic horror novel in Revelator by Daryl Gregory. I'm reading a space opera inhib- Inhibitor phase by uh, Al Reynolds. I've also started to read the 600-page Mayan-influenced Monica Burn book, The Actual Star. Uh-huh. And looking at a couple other things because I can't really settle into I- anything. And what I started to read and actually get into was um City on Fire, which is the new Don Winslow crime novel. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I fell into it, I realized it, is because it had none of the, the the imaginative barriers, if you like, that are sometimes put up in science fiction. I was reading a short story that was submitted to me for a project day before yesterday and i just was bouncing off it hard all the time every page because it was like here's the science fiction idea that doesn't make sense unless you jarringly read it and then here's another science fiction idea that doesn't make sense unless you jarringly decrypt it as opposed to just here's a story that unfolds and at various times in my life or and maybe even in any given year maybe even this year i would fall into those uh experiences of like wow that idea and that idea and that idea is really fascinating i'm completely drawn now it's like. I don't want to decrypt that world. I don't want to do that mental work right now. I want this other thing. And it sounds to me like this, like this, the, the Garcia, Miranda Garcia, novel. sounds like an example of, you don't have to do that science fictional world decrypting. You're doing this other thing and falling into a kind of story that doesn't make you do that work. It does something else. but not that kind of work.
1: I think that's exactly right. And I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I, I do this frequently, uh, more than, I, more than I used to. I used to love hard science fiction because of the puzzle aspect of it. Mm. And then there's a point at which uh, the, the or the, maybe there's a time when I just am not in the mood and I'm saying, get on with the story. I don't want to decode this world. A good example of an author who does both, who, who, who just almost exists at both ends of that spectrum for me, is somebody who I believe is having a birthday today and that's Greg Egan. Is today his 60th yesterday.
0: birthday?
1: According to false.
0: Well, According to file seven seventy, I don't know this. To be, uh, August the twenty first was
1: his sixtieth birthday. Okay. Yes. Um, well, happy birthday, Greg! I'm sure you're listening to us all the time. Um, <laughs> the first, the first few Greg, <laughs> I need to I have it. Let's... Yeah. When I started reading Greg Egan, I started reading his short fiction that was in those Gardner Dozois anthologies. Uh, it was just absolutely fascinating. This is the most interesting science fiction that I'd read, and And it continued that way, and he still can write that sort of thing. Um, There's a point when I got into his orthogonal trilogy where the world is based on an alteration of a couple of basic laws of physics, and it's incredibly ingeniously worked out. This is a part of his career. He may have done this all along, but I only became aware of it after i have been reading him for a few years, where he adds the equations onto his website so you can actually make sure that he's done the math right and that sort of thing. And there was a point at which in one of those, not the first one, the first one was actually kind of fun, where I thought, I'm just going to take a break. I just want want to get on with the story. I don't want to untangle what this wavelength of light will do to that color uh, under these circumstances with this degree of gravity. It just is... Something that sometimes is a lot of fun and sometimes you don't want to do it.
0: What I find interesting about Greg, who I stress, I should stress I've never met. Hmm. And so I find it kind of weird to get into the whole, so like, happy birthday, Greg, because I'm not sure that's really the public uh, relationship he has with his readers. But when I first encountered stuff, what struck me was how great he was at explaining very complicated things clearly. Yes. And... It's interesting. The stuff they put on his website is an interesting side or footnote to to what he does. And you're right, there are all all the mathematical equations and visualizations. And I think that they're important in some ways. But I think that his best fiction has always been his most human fiction. And I think the thing that he's least appreciated for is particularly when you get to work that's below novel length. Yeah. Just how, you know, human uh, it is. I mean, he did a, a piece for me for tour uh, a couple of years ago um, that came out uh what was the title it came under i can't believe i'm blanking now that's terrible hmm. um i feel it's, it's not because i didn't love it came out the same time as permafrost came out uh it was going to be called perturbation and it got retitled it'll come to me in a minute Perihelion summer oh okay which is this climate change short novel that he wrote based in West australia and the characterization's great and it's fantastic stuff, but everybody expects his stuff to be cold, hard SF, and it rarely no, I mean, actually is.
1: One of the things I put in another, a, a plug um, for, uh, okay, for for a story called "Reasons to Be Cheerful," uh, which, in a early story, mm. it's it's completely, it's uh, it's a heartbreaking kind of story, and a lot of his fiction does that. A lot of the things that uh, I'd pointed out, actually, a lot of this was pointed out to me by our colleague Karen Burnham, who reviews short fiction, but she also wrote. Uh, the book on Greg Egan for my University of illinois press series, and one of the points she was making, and she's an engineer, so she certainly loves the engineering aspect of it, was how deeply humane his fiction could be and oh. in the same in the same year he'd be writing some in, in intensely hard s f kind of thing and then um writing uh completely character based stories at the same time and and, and so that's true and I, I i don't bounce i've never bounced off of his character bases at all,
0: yeah. So, I mean, look, and, and I think just as a complete aside, I think one of the things that's apt, in fact, if you are interested in code Streeters in celebrating Greg Egan's 60th birthday, I don't know why you would be, but if you do, the best way you could do it is to go order a copy of The Best of Greg Egan, which you can get from Subterranean Press or from uh, 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 from Golantz in their Masterworks here. And It's a brilliant book. Collects his great, his best short fiction, and that that is a lot of you know the heart of of his work.
1: One uh, of the questions uh, yes. I have about Greg Egan, though, and this is something I was mm-hmm. thinking this afternoon. Uh, there are when we talk about influential writers, we were talking, uh, I think, on our last podcast about how influential, for example, C.J. Cherry has. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm uh, we, we we could go on endlessly about the influence of Le Guin. There are very important writers who uh, create. Important bodies of fiction, and I'm not sure that anybody tries to follow in their footsteps. I don't know of anybody who's writing who wants to try to write Greg Egan kinds of fiction. Ted Chang. I think Ted Chang writes Ted Chang kinds of fiction. Um, I reckon Ted Chang's influenced by Greg
0: Egan. uh, It's very possible because the two of them. Mostly because I've heard Ted Chang say he's influenced by Greg Egan. Well,
1: and when you talk to Ted, he says things that sound like things that Greg Egan would say. He's, he's, he's fascinated by those systems and that sort of thing. Uh, but I was going to say nobody tries to write Ted Chang stories either because it's just probably not a good idea to try. I don't know. I mean, I think the interesting thing
0: there is you begin to try to work out what influence means because oh, yeah. surely the thing that, that Chang and Egan have in common is a way of thinking rather than a way of writing. I, I think have- you're right. That's a good point and i think sometimes that's what you see and it's a little harder to trace also because influence is such a complex we underestimate all kinds of massive influences okay. all the time because they're invisible to you or to me you know so for example steve jackson right yeah. the, the games writer is a colossally important and influential writer impacting science fiction and fantasy over the last 20 years or 30 years just you and i probably don't see his influence that much because we don't game and no. because we don't game we don't see how the gaming rolls into major bodies of work that are appearing now um i mean how much of what you see in contemporary f-
1: science fiction and fantasy is gaming influence
0: george Martinus is gaming influence i think it's gaming think influence
1: it. uh, somebody i know through through the uh, International Conference on the Fantastic had done some research on this, on on how gaming has begun to influence especially large-scale epic fantasies. But the other side of that, course, of course, is what fantasies influence the gamers writing the games. Sure. A a lot of this... It's all circular, right? It, it is. I mean, somebody, uh, again, you can go back to Tolkien. I mean, we, we've, we've, we've talked about this before. You know, every sort of subgenre of Fantastica has its go to influence. Whether you, hmm. whether you liked um, uh, Heinlein or not, Heinlein was an enormous influence. And if you didn't like Heinlein, you probably were influenced by somebody who did. Um, and an even better example is Lovecraft. Lovecraft is we don't need to go into yet again all the problematic no, aspects no. of Lovecraft, and yet everybody from Victor Laval to N.K. Jemison is responding to Lovecraft in some way, or is in responding to responses to Lovecraft. Um, in fantasy, it's obviously Tolkien. Every, you know, uh, it's, it's not as though there wasn't science fiction before Heinlein, or th- there wasn't fantasy before. Tolkien, of course, there was horror before Lovecraft, but those become kind of the watersheds and you have to deal with that if you're going to write in those genres. And my argument is that if you look at gaming, what little I know about gaming, there are a lot of Lovecraft-influenced games, there are a ton of Tolkien-influenced games, and there are probably some Heinlein-influenced games, I just don't know what they are. Starship Troopers would be one of them, I think. Okay, there you go. For that matter, the, we haven't even <laughs> talked about movies. For that matter, I mean, you could make an argument. You could make an argument that the film *Blade Runner* has been more more influential in later science fiction than the novel *Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep*. I think that's probably a fairly safe bet. Actually, I was thinking about something because did you see there was an interesting
0: post on Facebook from the great Samuel R. Delaney this last week, mm-hmm. talking about science fiction that you struggle to read and how he thought that Dune was a lousy novel, I mean, a terrible mm-hmm. novel, and how he couldn't read uh, Philip K. Dick, even though apparently when he was working as an intern for David Hartwell, David Hardcore, before, yeah. makes extra money, he worked on Mary and the whatever it is, one of the Philip K. Dick novels, you could see that Dick could, was interesting, but couldn't believe that he'd been as influential as he's been. And you know, there's this feeling that sort of Dick's been vastly influential because the film's been made, mm-hmm. but I wonder if that's holding true. I wonder if the influence of
1: Philip K. Dick is on the wane. I, I think Philip K. Dick has, has is less of an influence, but he's been added to the toolbox. Uh, there are we mentioned Daryl Gregory. Daryl Gregory's first novel was Pandemonium, which is is very much mm-hmm. playing with Philip K. Dick. I just playing with Philip K. Dick himself, for that matter. Yep. So I think there was that sense that Philip K. Dick is now part of what you can draw on, but I don't think you could identify what you would call a Philip K. Dick tradition in science fiction. Um,
0: I mean, allowing that, next March will be the 50th anniversary of his
1: death. Wow. Or is that it 40th, 40th, right? 40th anniversary? 40th. Okay, I was going to say, because that, it's not... Yeah, yeah, no, he, 40th. I, I know he saw a rough cut of Blade Runner before you. Blade he died, Runner. So. Yeah.
0: Next, it'll be the 40th anniversary of his death next March.
1: Um, that makes me feel old, I suppose. But I, uh, he's, he's one of those well, people well, that I, 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 I never... Met him. I knew people who knew him well, obviously, and uh, and one of the writers I most admire, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, did his dissertation on Philip K. Dick, then um, published it as a book. So, so I think that there's a generation of writers uh, of of that vintage, which means a slightly older generation of writers who probably were blown away by what Philip K. Dick could do. Uh, and oh, I think there's a bunch of editors. I just don't know that that's happening today. I think that you're right. I think people are absorbing Dick through movie adaptations more than through the novels. And if, if, if there were a Philip K. Dick novel, I would recommend to somebody uh, to get a sense of Philip K. Dick. It wouldn't be The Man in the High Castle, and it wouldn't be uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. It probably would be Ubik. Interesting.
0: I've only got one Philip K. Dick novel I like. I haven't hmm. read it in 30 years, and that's "Flow My Tears." The policeman said,
1: and that's one which is probably, outside of the paranoia, the least science fictional of his novels. When 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 that novel appeared, I remember there was a controversy uh, in the field that this is basically a murder. It's, it's basically a mystery novel. That hmm. if you if you took away all the science fiction trappings would still be the same mystery novel. Did you see,
0: by the way, I mean, just to go show how the crazy the world is, that this year uh, the Folio Society put out like a $1,300 edition of the collected stories of Philip K. Dick as
1: an art object? It better be an art object because I don't know anybody who's going to want to pay that money to... They sold, the like they sold them all in like a
0: week. They sold them all like a week. Wow. It was like this four-volume set in this box done as this art... This. Art, glowingy kind of objecty thing, uh, with different art by all kinds of people for every story
1: and blah 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 blah.
0: But I'm going like $1,300 bloody edition of a Philip K. Dick short story
1: collection. And 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 the, and then the old Red, Gary, <laughs> the old Ace edition of Solar Lottery, which I bought for 35 cents, is probably still worth 35 cents. There was a story. Okay, talk about forgotten writers and 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 posthumous reputations. Oh. Yes. There's a famous story by Nelson S. Bond, who was one of the classic pulp writers who mm-hmm. uh, died decades ago. I guess he was never yes. actually a very good writer, but he was somebody who really, really apparently wanted respectability, who wanted to, uh, yes. you know, escape the pulps. And one of his stories takes place in the distant future when uh, the only uh, the only artifact left over from Earth is this precious volume of books by an author named Nelson S. Bond, and there's something absolutely touching about this guy who, during his life, knew he would never escape the pulp magazines, imagining <laughs> that at some point in the future, he would be in the Folio Society in a $1,300 <laughs> special
0: edition of all his short fictions. It has been a curious part of the the gentrification of science fiction, Gary, to see these collectors, you know, these literary markets—I guess you'd call them—these mainstream markets start publishing science fiction so that they can keep making money. So, I mean, the Folio Society's made a lot of money out of publishing science fiction editions. I mean, most notably, they're up to like the tenth printing or something of their edition of *Dune*, mm-hmm. which they sell for like
1: hundred and seventy-five bucks a copy. And how much does *The Book of the New Sun* going for with the Neil Gaiman interest?
0: In Australian that? dollars, the well, the original—they ver- they, they did the a, a four-volume set which was $850, mm. which was the last thing that Gene signed before he died. And that sold very quickly. But the current thing, which is a two-volume set, which is, you know, the, that omnibusy thing that Tor does, you know, Claw of the Conciliator and Sword and Citadel or something, they're called them, the two of them. That's 300 Australian dollars. Wow. And, I mean, they we went through the first printing of that it, very quickly and is into its second printing now. Uh, is available for the website. And they've also just done a, I think... Their three-volume set of Foundation is out there for around the same sort of price, and it's obviously selling. And some of the very, I have to say, some of the books they do are don't attract mine, but they do some very pretty books as well. Uh, and similarly, what's happening with Library of America, who've plainly since stumbling across Lovecraft some you know a decade or two ago, realized there's money to be made in those hills.
1: Yeah, I think that actually the credit for most of that would go to Jonathan Lethem, um, because Jonathan yeah. Lethem is the one who lobbied for Philip K. Dick. And the Philip K. Dick volume started coming out before the Lovecraft volume. The Lovecraft volume, the Library of America, actually, I think, approached Peter Straub about editing that. And that led to his American Fantastic Tales, and eventually it led to the, the ones I did in novels of the 50s and 60s. We're talking, we're, have, we're in talks about the 1970s. They have a list which they're going through. But then, of course, they discovered Le Guin and began working with Ursula before uh, her death. Uh, so, yeah. So, that with Brian Atterbury, they had already done Vonnegut, uh, so so it's not as and though they're doing they Bradbury, of course. Uh, they're doing Bradbury now, of course, and uh, they're going. They're doing the Octavia Butler, uh, so it's it's and they're considering a lot of other science fiction writers. So I don't think it's a matter of um, these publishers discovering science fiction. I think that's part of it. I think it's a matter of science fiction no longer being automatically excluded from things. That's,
0: those are two different it, things. You, you have me thinking, right? Like, who is it that isn't in that number for the Library of America? And, and you know the name that occurs to me? And I can think of a couple of people, but hmm. Harlan. Harlan Ellison is someone you, you
1: would have thought would have ended up in that space, but I don't think will. I don't think will either. Um, I had, uh, as, as you know, I, I did a book about Harlan, which mm. yeah, uh, there are... A lot of really first-rate Harlan Ellison stories, but there aren't enough to make an eight hundred-page Library of America volume. No, no. I mean, no, no, one of the not. arguments that I had with him, well, I, I feel bad because he's not here to to snipe back, which he did very well. Uh, he, out of eleven hundred stories or so that I read for the book, I, I ended up telling him there are probably thirty or forty masterpieces. He did not take that well. Um, he, he thought there were about 1,100 masterpieces there.
0: <laughs> Can I just say, I think if, if someone
1: objectively, if you were told you'd written 30 masterpieces, that's that, that, that's not that's bad. Kind of what I thought. I mean, Joseph Conrad didn't write that many good short stories. Come on. Uh, it's it's not a bad track record. Do you reckon that, do th- well, I guess North Atlantic
0: Presses work kind of puts an end run around Library of America doing Sturgeon, doesn't
1: it? I don't think so. Uh, the Library of America doesn't really uh, worry about other competing addition. Um I I, I, I will uh, say that there are things that they they haven't gotten a hold of because of ridiculous permissions uh, issues, one of, the, one of them being Thomas M. Dish, who we could not get in our 1960s volume. And now I notice that camp concentration and the genocides are going out of print, which is sad. But by and large, the Library of America, not speaking for them, but having talked with them many times over many years, uh, is not in, is not worried about competing markets, especially competing small press markets. So I think, I think Sturgeon would be a, a, a possibility for them. And again, one of the yeah. things that I think makes a difference is having an advocate. Certainly, Samuel R. Delaney is on their radar, uh, and that's yeah. a problem. That's a problem because there's a lot of stuff, and Dahlgren is a lot of stuff by itself, and there's a lot of important nonfiction. I have another, another volume from Wesleyan called, what's it called? Um, wait a minute. Occasional Views, Volume 1. This is just almost random uh, essays and uh, introductions and afterwards liner notes to an album, uh, interviews and so forth and so on. And it's endlessly fascinating. Uh, notes on some of his novels like The Star Pit. Um, so um, a lot, and there's a fair amount in here, interestingly enough, about Theodore Sturgeon. So uh, my guess is, and and if you've been looking at Samuel R. Delaney's uh, Facebook posts, Sturgeon is one of the most influential writers in his life. And he makes a very good point for Sturgeon being one of the major short fiction writers of the 20th century, who is, and probably of all the major science fiction short fiction writers, the one who's had least recognition outside the genre. So there's, 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 there's a case there to be made for for Sturgeon, but it, again, it wouldn't be the uh, North Atlantic Press. Was that the one? Um, it, yeah, that, yeah. It, it wouldn't be an attempt to do what they did, which is to print his entire work of body of short fiction, starting with the earliest stories, which are actually not very good. Again, Sturgeon had hundreds of stories of which I'm sure there are thirty or forty master. I don't know if yeah, you could probably do a, a really good selected stories. Yeah, uh, and something else. Well, you could do more than human and a bunch of stories. Uh, You could possibly do more than human and the Dreaming Jewels and a bunch of stories. So I I think putting together a Sturgeon volume wouldn't be difficult. The problem is not necessarily getting enough material for a volume. Uh, It it is in some writers. With other writers, the issue is how do you get this down to a reasonable level? Um, How -hmm. do you deal with Gene? I I'd suggested to them... Uh, at one point being doing a volume of Gene Wolfe's novellas. I think they're brilliant. And I think the novella is a form which, partly because of its current renaissance, but in general has been so important to the development of science fiction and fantasy. So yeah then, well, what does that mean? You do one volume with the Book of the New Sun and leave out all the sequels to that and do another volume of yep. the novellas, but then you've got The Wizard Night, then pretty soon you... you they're not going to do 13 volumes of anybody. So, no, no. so it becomes a question of writers... For whom it's a stretch to make one volume, and writers for whom you have to cut back to, to make a reasonable volume. There are people who are upset with their Shirley Jackson volume because there are not enough stories in it, and I don't remember which novels are in it. I guess uh, we have always lived in the castle and certain, the haunting. are never going to please everybody. No, you're never going to please everybody. Well, but the idea behind the Library of America is not really, despite what some people think, it's not the Pleiades of these series. It's not an official government-sanctioned. This is the canon of American literature. It's an attempt to represent important writers uh, who have kind of defined American literature as we see it today. And it is, uh, it, it, it's clearly American. It's not. That's the other thing that comes up um, again and again is. It is a kind of nationalistic thing. It's an attempt to define uh, American literature. There probably wouldn't be a bad idea to have similar projects in every country. France started this. To some extent, uh, the Oxford classics in, yep. in, in, in England were trying to do this. Is there any kind of a library of classic Australian literature? Maybe, I don't know. I mean, truthfully, I haven't really, really looked. Well, here's the question though: if you were if you were going to make a canon without and I, what I know about Australian literature is pretty much Peter Carey and a bunch of science fiction writers, and Peter yeah. Carey kind of is part of that. But yeah. if you were going to put together uh, a canon of Australian literature, would Greg Egan be part of it? No, really?
0: I don't think Greg Egan's that widely known in Australia.
1: It's not a matter of being widely known. Is
0: he that good? Okay, and so, you know, do you mean in general literature terms? Yeah, right. I don't think he would be he would be considered no. Huh, that surprises me. I, I, I think when when you've got your Tim Wintons and your Peter Careys and your Richard Flanagan's and these kind of people, mm. all uh, you know uh, Patrick White those are the people who will be yeah. uh, canonized, um, uh, but not. I can't imagine Craig Egan would be on okay, genre no, I mean, no.
1: genre writer at all. Okay, now you sound like people sounded fifteen or twenty years ago talking about the Library of America. The Library of America started out obviously with with Emerson and and, and Thoreau and yeah. uh, Herman Melville and so forth and so on. Eventually, they worked their way around to uh, to Raymond Chandler and uh, and to Dashiell Hammett and to hardboiled fiction, and. And eventually, so it's, 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 it's not, a, and, for, and certainly John Updike and Philip Roth, interestingly enough, I think there were only three writers to appear in the Library of America while they were alive. One was Le Guin, one was Philip Roth, and one was Frederick Pohl, because he was in my 50s mm-hmm. volume before he died. So, yeah, they, they got through a whole bunch of writers. There are writers I don't think they've gotten to yet. Um, but at some point, you have to realize the canon exists in genre as well as outside of it. That's what I mean Mm -hmm. when I say the issue is not making a conscious decision to include science fiction or fantasy or hard-boiled fiction or uh, Shirley Jackson fiction. It's a decision to no longer exclude them. Yeah. Those are two different ways of looking at things.
0: Yeah. I might be wrong because I don't pay much attention to what happens here, but um, I don't feel
1: like that discussion has happened in this country yet. It very well may not be. Uh, And it, it, it may be that there's not enough interest in it and maybe that it wouldn't be profitable for any publisher to do. Um, well, I mean, also, I mean, it's, genre fiction publishing in Australia
0: is weird at the moment because there's not a lot actually published locally from local writers. I mean, everything goes overseas to overseas publishers. Yeah. and comes back. You know, there might be a few exceptions, but that seems to be the the still the, comp, the pattern. There was a real growth of domestic publishing in the mid, you know, in the nineties, but by the end of the two 2010s, that had all been absorbed Back overseas, pretty much. Hmm. So if you're an Australian looking to publish today, you're not looking to publish here, You're looking to pub- in genre. You're looking to publish outside the country. But, but to some extent, that has to do with the size of the market, doesn't it? Um, sort of, yes. Uh, I think that's a, a chunk of it. And just they, it didn't work. I mean, for whatever reason, there's some theories about it. The finding local writers and getting them into print here just didn't work. I, maybe it's just the, you know, the international need to have larger print runs. It was easier to sell to. The, I mean, also, Commonwealth rights and people want you know the UK wanting to have Australian rights. If they're going to publish a book at all, yeah. and they wouldn't buy it. You couldn't sell. You not sell here in Australia to a local and then to a UK publisher and then to a US publisher. That's very difficult to do. I can only think of one or two writers who manage that.
1: You know, so. Well, I think I think one of the things that is not an issue when you start talking about Australian literature, then you start asking, well, what is natively Australian about it, or what is natively American about American or what is natively British about British literature? In a way, what Lavi Tiddar is doing now with what he calls The Matter mm-hmm. of Britain, which really, I guess, is going to go, it's, it's, he's done Arthurian fiction, he's done uh, Robin Hood now, he's probably going to go on and do Victorian and Elizabethan, I guess, eras. Um, what he's doing is sort of reconstructing and and, uh, and and reinventing and demolishing what you think of as a national literature. You know, it, it's it's a national literature um, in 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 a kind of academic sense, but in, in a lived sense, it's not what we thought it was at all. So my point is that the American can the American literature canon, which I mean Emerson, Melville, you know Hawthorne, uh, that was that's a that's a fifty or sixty year old idea now, and yeah. The more the more you publish something like the Library of America or uh, the the French series or a British series or an Australian series, the more you realize that your national literature is not defined by nationalism. It's a kind of archaic idea to begin with. Um, one of the most one of the most common complaints I got when I did the nineteen fifties volume for the Library of America was, "Where is Arthur C. Clarke?" And my answer was, "England, Malacca." <laughs> but you know, uh, anyway. That's an hour, Gary. It it's is. We've been rambling in the woods for an hour. What this is to- this, this totally feels like rambling. And the thing is about this, among most among all of our rambles, I'm gonna think of all these writers, especially regional writers that we didn't think of, and I'm gonna feel like a complete idiot in about forty five minutes.
0: Oh sure. Particularly all of the female writers exactly. ever to it, who
1: were there and I know they are,
0: and all the writers of color and yeah, you bet. And trying to make like I've te- them. I never go back and listen to the podcast, I never go back and really edit them significantly in any way. And so, you're always left sort of wondering what we've actually said afterwards, uh, you know, if they, you know in, in all honesty. And, and I, you know, I think about what's what is enthusing me to write now and, and the impact of you know, different voices, different things. Like, I edited um, Kundu Wakes Up, which is a new novella from Saad Hussein that's coming out next year,
1: mm-hmm.
0: set in the same universe as. The the uh, and the Lord of Tuesday, hmm. and what I love about it, right, is it's the it opens set in Chittagong, and it's the evocation that he has of this local neighbourhood and what the city's like to be in, and all, at this point in the future, which is deeply, deeply engaging and just wonderfully done.
1: As far funny as, as fiction it, is, uh,
0: yeah, in many ways it is. Um, and I mean, and I'm very really looking forward to reading his new novel, uh, Cyber Mage, which is coming out at the end of this year. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it is. it is. It's funny, and it's smart, and it's, you know, it's different from, from, Kund, from The from and Lord of Tuesday, but really really interesting. But it does have that sort of local sense, and that, that's what I really am reading for now. I mean, like, I find myself reading, like, I'm looking at a lot, at a lot of African fiction, mm-hmm. science fiction fantasy right now. I mean, you would have seen the year's best, they're just putting out the first year's best African speculative fiction.
1: Right. Right. Uh, that- that's just been,
0: I don't think it's actually out. It's out
1: to pre-order.
0: Is it, out, um, is it out
1: in uh, the UK and the US and Australia? I think, I think a... what, what's happening, is I think it's going to be put out. Um,
0: it, my understanding, right, it's being edited by I've uh, chevway, Donald Pecky, right, Yeah. Who was, a, who was the editor of Dominion and was nominated for his novella from that book right. all over the place. And I think he's publishing it under his own imprint, Gemba Fowler Press, and it's coming out next ah. month. Uh, and it's coming out through Smashwords, so it's available globally in English, at okay. least in digital edition. And what I find myself in reading for, for a book like that is I want that sense of, I mean, what are these places that I don't know about like? What, what exactly. is it like to live in, in 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 Lagos, say, you know, or wherever it might be? And, I mean, I, I will say as well, I mean, I, I'm fascinated to get, get, uh, uh, get him onto the podcast at some point if we can work out time differences and everything. Because there's one thing that's not in the book that I'm personally disappointed about. Mm. The book doesn't have any... Uh, doesn't have an, an introduction or interstitial material. Hmm. And in this case, I'm fascinated to know when you approach the subject, the year's best African speculative fiction, how do you form that up into a book? How do you, What what is the thing you're doing? Year's best are a particular form and that's great. Hmm. And I'm fairly familiar with them. I think it's fair to say. Um, I want to know what it is he means by African fiction and African speculative fiction and how you go putting t- together this book to put together this thing you're presenting? Because I mean, we're at this point where arguably there's more interest in this sort of thing than ever before in the history of the field. We're more willing to engage with uh, with fiction from outside of uh, the uh, the, you know, the English market. We've had a year's best South Asian uh, right. short fiction a couple of years ago. I think it was only one volume, maybe two volumes of those came out. From, it was uh, it. Yeah, was like... that
1: meant to be a year's best or was it just an anthology? Of him?
0: Well, there was, we have to be careful not to confuse, there was a Taran Saints South Indian or South Asian book, but there oh, actually wait. was a, from, I'm trying to remember the name of the publisher, I have a copy somewhere, there oh. actually was a best of the year, a, a, okay. a, 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 a South Asian best of the year, and it, puts, it gave you some attempt to put things into a annual perspective and african fiction or africa as a grouping in this case african speculative fiction mm-hmm. is fascinating to me because it is so many different things right that's uh, exactly yeah go ahead because first of all it's, it's fiction written by people who currently live in countries that are africa they're in africa mm-hmm. it's fiction written by people who are part of the african diaspora it's Fiction written about Africa? You know, it's like, which and and in this case, I mean, I look at the authors who are included and some really interesting authors, but a lot of them are uh, diaspora writers rather than necessarily people who are living in parts of Africa and in African nations at this point. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just like, I'm just trying to get a a feeling for what is that joining thing that Ogdena Chauffe has seen to put his book together uh, to, to give it coherence. That's what I'm looking for. It's just well, a really interesting thing. I really
1: well, I'm, I'm fascinated by it for another reason, and it has uh, the same question that uh, that we actually read to ask Jeff Ryman about this when he was doing his African Writers Project. Um, and he was very much interested in uh, introducing individual writers rather than groups of writers. And it's, it's something that's come up, it's come up uh, in discussion with uh, with Nnedi Okorafor, I've talked to Tade Thompson briefly about it. We're finally aware of African science fiction, but we're talking about a continent as though it were a culture. And finally getting beyond that, and you recognize that, you're right, Nigerian fiction is not the same thing as... Uh, let's say uh surpels the 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 old drift, which is Zambia, I think. Uh and South African fiction, certainly. South African fiction has an identity for all kinds of probably historically not healthy reasons, but it's a different culture. My point is now we finally got to the point where you recognize that there are many countries in Africa producing interesting kinds of fantastic fiction. Um and are we ready yet to move beyond the idea of African fiction in the way that we've begun to move beyond the idea of Asian fiction or even South Asian fiction. In other words, we now recognize national... There's a lot of familiarity now with Korean fiction. Obviously, for decades, Japanese science fiction has been around, Chinese science fiction. Um, Indian science fiction has gotten some attention. But I think we need to recognize that there is a difference between Nigerian science fiction and, let's say... Uh, South African saying
0: I think that's true I mean, and some of this is I mean genuine like it, it's an interest and this is why I express this mild and I, I don't want to be overcritical my mild criticism or disappointment about not having an introduction in the year's best Yeah, no, african- that's I, kind of what which, I'm uh, saying is uh because you know there's also the difference between afrofuturism African futurism uh all these sort of things and it's a there's a desire to understand it and then engage with it. And I don't think you need to be clumsily defining it, but it's good to have some kind of idea of where the guide rails that somebody who's familiar with. with, Mm -hmm. That's that's what I would like to He's he's in the middle of it. Yeah. I mean, Um, it's
1: fascinating. I I think one of the things that a lot of these anthologies have in common is that these are all collections of essentially post-colonial cultures. You know, one of the things that Mm. a lot of African cultures have in common is the depredations from Europeans and to some extent from Americans. And, uh, and, and and so that may be something that links a lot of these cultures together. But I don't know. I simply don't know enough about the separate cultures. The other thing which seems to be missing from this, and I would love to see an anthology of it, and there have been uh, various fantasy and science fiction anthologies of South, of South American and Latin American science fiction and fantasy. And I know uh, there's one good history of brazilian uh, science fiction even mm-hmm. so there, there, there are these traditions mm-hmm. as well um but i don't know that i could tell you i don't know that i could name an ecuadorian writer or um a brazilian Argen- or an argentine writer they, the south american uh continent seems to be getting less attention these days than asia or africa when it comes to finding new voices in science fiction and i don't know why that is
0: possibly i think there's been a lot more there's been interest in Mexicanx mm. uh, fiction over the last cu- couple of years. And I think there were, I mean, there was a number of Latino influenced anthologies and stuff five or 10 years ago. Cosmos Latinos was one, yeah, that was a, a kind of. Um, there was a handful. That, it does seem to have perhaps gone a little off the boil at the moment. But there's there's so many, I mean, there is a, a sense of ranging around the world going, well, you know, who do we look at? I mean, Clark's World have looked at, particularly at China mm-hmm. and Korea, highlighted those movies you say. I think that the work that Taran Saint has done and a few other people have done out of um, South Asia has made a big difference. And right. you begin to get a feel for the complexities and how difficult it is to talk about it, how uh, fractured the, in, the, the massive Indian publishing market is in world and right. the complexity of language that makes that, to get that looked at, and the same for Bangladesh and whatever else. That's all very complicated. And then Africa feels like, exponentially more complicated in more ways it does. than one because of the various infrastructural issues and racial issues and political issues and just trying to get a feel for it. But it's something that's really fascinating to engage with. I think Dominion was a spectacularly great exercise mm. last year, which was a really interesting and important anthology. I think uh, some of the other things that are coming there there's a Wale, Wale Talabe had an anthology last year which also was you know right. really significant. So there was that. Uh, and so just like seeing more of that sort of thing come out to give you a better feel so you can begin to interpret things. Uh, I would also give a shout out. I mean, I think that uh, for Ogdena uh, to omit his own story from the year's best. I mean, his novella from Dominion was w- probably one of the most award nominated pieces of mm. fiction by an, a genre a writer from Africa la- last year or over last year. And he's omitted it from his, from his year's best when possibly anybody else would have included it. So, it's oh. interesting that he chose that. So maybe a little shout out as well, and to and to say to readers or to listeners of the podcast, if you have not done so, I would recommend seeking a copy of Dominion, uh, an anthology of speculative fiction from Africa and the African diaspora, which I'm going to show away Donald Donald Ekpeyi co-edited with Zelda Knight, and that came out last year and is around, and it's worth getting. Uh, as look at, and it's a remarkably handsome looking book, uh, both Dominion and oh. the Year's Best African Speculative Fiction. So you know. What's it looking for? Plug, plug, plug.
1: Okay, that's a good, good, good plug. And at some point, we'll. Now we're well over time. We're well over time, yeah. It's, well, we're hoping now that some listeners can send us some corrections about all kinds of things we've messed up. Regional. Too many things. Um, too many things. African things. I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. I'm still fascinated about uh, Latin American literature because that is, in the minds of so many people, the birthplace of magic realism, which was one of the first respectable literary movements. I mean, going back to uh, writers like Bor- Borges and, and uh, Julio Cortazar and Carlos Fuentes, um, you know, you could you could mix fantasy and science fiction and myth in Latin American literature before you could get away with in an American and in North American literature. So people tell us what's going on in um, South America, what's going on in Africa, what are we missing in Pakistan and India, and why is there not more Sri Lankan and Nepalese literature, and well, you mentioned Saad Hussein. So it's just an exciting world to be looking at from the point of view of science fiction and fantasy. And I not Which would I, I just don't think I don't think you or I are at this threshold yet, where we really know enough to make a statement about these things in general. But there's stuff to read. There's stuff, to, to, stuff read. to read. All we've established is that you and I are not nearly as well read as we thought we were. Or than the, that we have pretended to be. i uh, well, there's a. I'm just as well read as I thought I was, Gary. I'm just nowhere near as
0: well read as I
1: pretended to be. Okay, well, that's all
0: right, fine.
1: <laughs> well, with that, let's let's just stop while we're ahead, and we're not even ahead. We're way behind, uh, and just yeah, say really, that, and, yeah. and, and, and 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 until we come to our senses, this has been. Oh Lord. The Code Street Podcast.
0: Oh, it has those poor, poor people.